Warning. The Eurocentric model of a proletarian revolution challenging, much less overcoming, the U.S. fiscal, military, capitalist, and imperialist state has not and will not work. A revolutionary working class must be able to acknowledge its enemy and not eschew only capitalism, but also colonialism and imperialism. That's Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz in her book, Not a Nation of Immigrants. Are you serious? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. I am Sean. I'm Aaron, co-host number two. Oh, no, you're co-host number one. I'm co-host number two. No, you're co-host number three, and co-host number one is a mystery. Perhaps the audience. This is just my theory, but their internal <laughs> monologue and what they pay attention to and what they don't and what they take away from it ultimately lies in the audience's own mind. Yeah, other people think the audience is co-host number four and co-host one is a ghost. And we may never know. But Sean and Aaron (laughs) speak on mic during the podcast. Yeah, so putting all that aside, we're joined this week by historian and author Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, whose book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, was really a mind-blowing read. It was an absolute pleasure having Roxanne on to talk about how this mythology that America is a nation of immigrants and not a settler colonial nation isn't just a kind of feel-good liberal ideal we should try to live up to, but that by calling America a nation of immigrants, you're obscuring the truth. Addressing settler colonial history kind of requires that we be honest and not euphemize them away. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Dictionary Time, where we talk about some of the words being used on the show to make sure that we're remaining accessible to everyone of all levels of experience. The meanings of multisyllabic words are not always obvious, and we want to talk a little bit about what settler colonialism is, because many people first experience it in a context where it's not defined. And you can sort of piece together, you know, guess what it means, but I think it's a good thing to define. Yeah. So one definition of settler colonialism, this is from globalsocialtheory.org. Settler colonialism is a distinct type of colonialism that functions through the replacement of indigenous populations with an invasive settler society that over time develops its own distinctive identity and sovereignty. The basic idea of colonialism is one more powerful group is exerting economic and political power over a less powerful group, often exploiting them for resources, usually having some sort of settlement. The thing that makes settler colonialism distinct is the settler population is seeking to replace, often exterminate, or push out the indigenous population. So you're kind of without their consent, moving into their house and kicking them out or killing them a process which meets the UN's definition of genocide, which is the case, obviously, in the United States. Yeah, also Canada, Australia, South Africa. South America, Australia. Did you say Australia? I did say Australia. There's numerous places where this happened, and that's what settler colonialism means. There's a lot of things that tie into that, but that's like the top level.
before we go to our interview, let's have a culture war moment. Let's have a culture war corner. I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart. Maybe I'll just start by asking you, how do you feel when you see people pull down statues? Like such and such statue has been pulled down by protesters or defaced. They're usually like colonial bad guys who participated in the genocide of the Americas or owned slaves. Do you ever see like the statue pulling down videos? I think I've seen some. Like I hear about them on the Twitter and I'm like, that's cool. But I don't think I've watched videos. You gotta check it out. They've got this incredible energy to them moment it happens like everyone cheers it's like a stereotype about crowds is they're like unreasonable and then seeing a crowd do something that i find very reasonable <laughs> which is destroy monuments that have like really sinister political implication it makes me feel like change is possible in the world in a really visceral way it makes me feel like people take the moral content of history seriously i don't know i really appreciate seeing it Obviously, not everyone feels that way, but I do. The statue defenders always seem to have to play this weird game where they're making the argument both that the statue doesn't mean anything, but that it also means a lot and it's very important. For example, if it's a statue of a slaveholder, they'll say, nobody concerned with the lingering effects of slavery should be concerned about this statue. It's just the path. It, it, it means nothing. But it is also, at the same time, extremely meaningful and important. We not only keep the statue as some sort of like historical thing, maybe in a museum basement somewhere or something, but that it be displayed in like where it is now in public. Like we have to keep this statue in a position of veneration. But at the same time, it doesn't really mean anything, you know, like you shouldn't be offended by it. I was arguing with a family member about this. And they were like, you know, this is our history and stuff like that. But I was like, I know for a fact that you hate the government. Like you talk all the time about how the government is awful, how politicians are corrupt, how you can't trust the system. Like we're both like low income people, relatively speaking. We're not politically powerful people. Like why are you identifying with a statue of someone that you've never met that's part of the continuity of the rich and powerful's symbolic space? I didn't use those words exactly, but just like, it seems like many of the people who are defending this have no reason to identify with it, except for like in a large sense, like a settler identity, like an identity with a continuity of the system that had slaveholding and colonial expansion and stuff like that, that identify with that, even though they're a disenfranchised party of it. I think for a lot of people who aren't super politically aware, especially on these issues, that if you acknowledge the harmful effects of this massive historical process that lasted hundreds of years, there's so much beneath that. It's like opening up a Pandora's box of like, you're not where you thought you were. Like you thought you were in a liberal democracy. Maybe some bad things happened in the past, but we've gotten better now and it's okay. Those photos are in black and white. When people were being racist, it was a black and white photo. Yeah, and blurry. Really and long like, time ago. All of a sudden, you're in a settler colonial state. Still, it's not just in the past. The symbolic act of tearing down a statue is a statement that there's something wrong with what our society has up until this point allowed to be okay then it means it wasn't okay this whole time and i thought things were okay and that's scary another element of the game that's played against this is the idea that it's so inherently wrong to pull down a statue that doesn't belong to you 
it's a really propertarian kind of thing. It's like, even if you totally agree, it's like, I'm with you 100%. What an awful man. We should maybe not even have a statue of him. But to physically pull it down is like a mob. That, well, that's beyond the pale. That's horrible violence. That statue belongs to someone. <laughs> and you removed it. How would you like it if someone came to your house and pulled your computer off the desk? That's that's what you're sort of doing. It's absurd because yeah, I mean, maybe if it was someone's like private statue in like their backyard, they made themselves or like their friend made for them. <laughs> then maybe that's like it'd be an interesting culture to have if people like dedicated their front lawns to commemorate someone or something. <laughs> There's just tons of statues being made. It's like a personal consumption. I mean, I think there's still an argument for just as a thought experiment. If someone was like making a, a Hitler statue or something, then I think everyone would agree at a certain point it's okay to pull down that Hitler statue because like Hitler's so bad. You know? Yeah, even if it's on your front lawn. Even if it's private property, it's like we don't want to have Nazi flags in our neighborhood. Yeah. And like part of this argument is like where those moral lines are drawn. Honestly, that's all really a side note from the actual thing that's happening, which is like public statues typically on public land, public resources, commemorating things that people think shouldn't be commemorated and are shameful parts of the history. Yeah. And when it comes to pulling down statues, I, I'm thrilled by it. When the cause is right, it's just like beautiful. It's like democracy. It's like seeing institutions challenged by groups of dedicated, independent people. And I think that's part of what's scary about it to people who are like really against iconoclasm. And I should say, of course, the sweetie pie thing to do is first ask to remove the statue. Look at what the various options are available for trying to advocate for that. Direct action is a later step in the sequence there. That's a good point. People sometimes do get statues or monuments taken down without having to do all that hard work of, as a group, pulling it over, you know. One of the things that scares the statues must stay up crowd is this sort of chaotic, unruly nature of it. It does actually doesn't have to be that chaotic. It's like it goes step by step. It's a type of escalation in advocacy for this. We now go to an unruly mob mindlessly participating in the complete and total destruction of history itself. Ooh, here we go. Get it. Get the statue. Hey, where are all you guys going? Come What's on. What's going on? Come with us. We did the Cornelius Wrong statue. We're going to pull it down. Wait, what? what? You can't pull He was a murderer. Guys, guys, now I might not agree with everything that Cornelius Wrong did back in the day, but we can't go pulling down our history. And if we don't remember our history, we're doomed to repeat it. Hey, we're not listening to that guy, right? Right. right. Okay. Let's go. Oh, well, I can't say I didn't want to. All right, you throw the rope over the top there and see if we can just pull it down and if not we'll chip away at the bottom one two three yes oh yeah that's amazing now yeah why is there a statue on the ground something i don't remember anymore i mean i remember pulling it over but not why does anyone remember who this statue was of? Here, let me Google it. I'm kind of confused. I... Oh yeah, nothing. Nothing on Google. It says there's no statue. So does anyone know what's going on here? I'm very confused. I think I'm just reading all the faces around here. I think we're all yeah, very confused, confused by this. Confusion all around. Huh. Well, I hope that wasn't any important history we just forgot. Yeah, hey, I just got a new idea, by the way. What if we tried colonialism and slavery out for the first time? 
because there's nothing like that in history that I can remember. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. That's worth thinking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. If they, if I had a statue of someone in history who had done that, and we all agreed it was wrong, but they kept the statue up, but yeah, I just checking history. Mm, no, first time. Huh. Yeah. Let's. I yeah, mean, let's do it. All in favor of giving it a shot? I mean, we're already assembled as a mob here. What's everyone think? Yeah. Woo! I knew this would happen. I warned them. I warned them. And so with the statue toppled, the people forgot their history, leaving them completely without the ability to predict these things would go badly. And so they did it again. The end. We are now very excited to be joined by historian and author Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, a historian and activist, as well as the author of a number of books, including The Great Sioux Nation, an Indigenous People's History of the United States. She's joining us today to talk about Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. Thanks for joining us today, Roxanne. Thank you, Sean, for inviting me. So the conventional story that you run into in the United States in textbooks from politicians, including Barack Obama and Joe Biden and others, is that the United States is a nation of immigrants. It's a country of countries where, you know, hardworking immigrants who get things done come together to search for a better life together because America is this land of opportunity. And your book critiques this perspective. Well, you know, when I started interrogating the nation of immigrants in the earlier 2000s, I had no idea where it came from. I thought it was just a saying that had always been around. I wrote quite a few essays saying, stop calling this a nation of immigrants. This is settler colonialism. Immigration didn't even start legally until the 1880s as an institution. It was a lockdown settler colonial situation. I was dealing with settler colonialism, but also the terrible treatment of immigrants, you know, that I'm aware of, especially after I moved to California and lived in LA and was so aware of the border. And I thought, this is such a lie. Immigration was really exclusion. And, you know, I knew that already, and that's the point I was trying to make. But I had no idea the layers and depths and also just the origins of the mythology. As I narrate in the introduction to the book, it's actually time-stamped. 1958, John F. Kennedy was a senator from Massachusetts preparing to run for president. He published a book called A Nation of Immigrants. He invented or whoever put it in his mind, I think Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the U.S. historian, it may have been his brainchild. He was his advisor. Kennedy was trying to normalize immigration, Irish immigration, in order for him to get elected. He was a child of Irish immigrants, of very wealthy, but nevertheless immigrants, and Catholic, practicing Catholic. And that had never happened before. Presidents had always been either Anglo-American or Scots-Irish. Not Scots, but Scots-Irish. Those are the Scots who colonized Northern Ireland in the 15th century, which is still an issue today, divided half and half, Catholic and Calvinists, and the Calvinists are Scots. That was really the first settler colonialism that was sort of a template that they then brought to the United States. 
So reading this text, the first Irish immigrants, they were famine refugees from Ireland, Irish Catholics. They were extremely poor, came with nothing but rags on their back in whatever vessel they could get on to get out. Horrible situations, almost equal to slave ships. And it was a true famine. People were dying. Maybe a million people died. No one really knows the potato famine, which the British engineered. That's a very sympathetic story, and they certainly didn't come as settlers. They didn't want to leave their homeland. They had no design on taking anyone's land. They were colonial subjects. Noelic Native, How the Irish Became White, is this classic book that traces that. You know, it's a play on words because they look white, but actually they're colonized people. That's a long story. I try to tell it in the book, but this was not really the first immigration. There were no laws. The first immigration law was the exclusion of Chinese in 1883. And the second one, a few years later, was exclusion of all Asians. Then a lot of Italians came and a lot of Eastern Europeans in the 1880s and 1890s when they needed workers in industrial factories and sewing, manufacturing. They put a clamp on that. They weren't considered quite white. There was almost no limit on Western Europeans coming. So he has, of course, none of those nuances. He doesn't mention anything prior to the late 1840s when the famine refugees came. He tells a myth, actually an Irish myth, that the people in North America, when Europeans came, were actually intruders that had come and killed all the Aborigines. So those Aborigines may have been Irish. So that's an Irish myth that he perpetuates (laughs) in the book and ends up saying that Native Americans were the first immigrants. He has a line about Chinese, that they came with their gentle dreams. And of course, they were excluded and came undocumented and had no rights whatsoever and were and still are discriminated against, had the lowest pay, the worst jobs building railroads. He avoids any of that. It it really is a piece of propaganda for Irish Catholic acceptance. And in some ways, it really did have that effect. But he barely won the election, and then he was assassinated. And I think his being immigrant and Catholic had something to do with that, knowing Dallas, Texas pretty well, and what kind of people would hate (laughs) Irish Catholics. He was very controversial, and there were a lot of people gunning for him, lots of assassination plans. So it didn't totally work. But one thing I have to give him credit for, he did have the sympathy for immigrants that very few Anglo politicians had. He did start working immediately on getting the Democratic Congress to open up immigration because it was still 1924 restrictions. It didn't mean people didn't come, but they came illegally. And a lot of corporate owners or industrial mining and agriculture, of course, they liked that because, you know, they needed them for labor, but they also wanted to control them. Rather, in the case of Mexicans, of course, expel them periodically and make them so contingent with no path to citizenship. The same with Chinese and other Asians, Japanese. They could call the immigration service and have anyone deported. It was almost like indentured servitude. So they didn't mind that. And the government didn't do anything about it because they want to interfere with corporate profits. 
So he didn't live long enough to get it passed, but Lyndon Johnson carried it on to Congress, the bill that opened up to the rest of the world, higher quotas to Latin America, the Caribbean, Asia, and Africa in 1965. When we think of a nation of immigrants, it's a very flattening term to imagine the descendants of settlers, refugees, immigrants prioritized for their expertise, and the descendants of slaves. To put this all in one big sort of homogenous category called immigrant, could you help pull apart why that flattening isn't useful? I forgot to mention that nation of immigrants, Kennedy actually did include enslaved Africans as immigrants. That was a little shocking to me. That led me to do a whole chapter on enslaved Africans. And a Native colleague, Jody Bird, and Transit of Empire, she adopts the term arrivant. I thought that was a really good term to understand this sort of in-between, in-between category of settler and immigrant that applies to some of the war refugees who come, but especially, you know, fundamentally to enslaved Africans who had no control whatsoever over being transported. This was a Caribbean poet who created that idea of the arrival. Viet, when the Vietnamese Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote a book called Nothing Ever Dies that I found so enlightening. And he thinks it could be up to 90% of everyone that we call immigrants in the United States are actually refugees of U.S. ruining their countries one way or another, either economically or war, mainly war. Of course, Vietnamese refugees were called refugees. They were the people who fought on the side of the U.S., but they did not get in easily or any of the other Southeast Asian refugees, and they have very little control. They can't go where they want. They have to be relocated. They have to have sponsors and so forth. So even calling it immigration, when you have all these economic refugees that you created, like the U.S. wars, Reagan's wars, Bush's wars for 12 years, and uh, 20 years later, the devastation that was done gets worse and worse and worse. So drug cartels take over and people start fleeing for their lives. I think he's right. I looked at every case. It really is pretty much having to do with U.S. wars and economic exploitation, ruining those countries, the IMF involved and so forth. So, And yet they won't call them refugees because they have a very narrow definition. That means you can prove that the government is persecuting you. Anyone who left the Soviet Union was automatically an asylum seeker or had refugee status, or anyone from Sandinista, Nicaragua, or anyone from Iran after the revolution. So it's a very politicized designation. What really is important is not just that John F. Kennedy opportunistically created this mythology, but how it was taken up by the liberal establishment. What they did was the opening to the rest of the world. Here's the, you know, national liberation movements, decolonization in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Some of them were new nations and some simply like India. They decolonized, established republics, and started educating a professional class, teachers and so forth, doctors. To make a society, that was a priority. And the United States is skimming off. Britain did it too, skimming off really a brain drain of these places. 
in the 60s. Well, I was married to a Mexican citizen, and I was really shocked that his brother was getting his entire medical school education free. And they were a well-to-do family. They could have paid, but it was just Mexican law. They, all they had to do was spend the first year in internship in a rural indigenous area because there were few doctors who wanted to establish themselves there. So it's one way they provided medical care to the poorest of the poorest in rural regions. And he made it very clear that he was going to go straight to Canada once he got his degree, because he could get paid more and have a better life. But many from Philippines and other places, medical doctors with medical degrees come and end up in lab assistants or x-ray technicians because the medical association is very limiting in transferring their medical degrees, even though the liberals speak about compassion and everything. The bills that actually pass and the discussions is mainly how to keep people out and how to control them and how to only skim off the exact people you want, but to not be any kind of refugee relief. A stark example was the quotas that were in place during the Holocaust and building up to the Holocaust. Jewish people who escaped floating around in ships trying to find someone to take them. And the United States had this strict quota of 56,000 people from Central or Eastern Europe that prohibited them from coming in. Mexico took more Jewish refugees than the United States. Cuba, small Cuba, took more refugees than the United States. So a lot of people died. A lot of people were killed. A lot of people didn't get out because of U.S. policies. And during the Johnson administration, the civil rights movement, red power and brown power and women's liberation, all of these were demands, mass demands that had to be dealt with. So then you have the development of affirmative action and multiculturalism. So it got wrapped up in the package of multiculturalism and entered all the textbooks. And the phrase then just become generalized. It was never footnoted. Well, this is John F. Kennedy's term. It was just in the air, became one of those things that everyone should care about. And yet never at any moment in that period of time from 1958 to the present have the actual immigration policies reflected in any way the idea that it's a nation of immigrants or the Statue of Liberty standing up there lying, <laughs> you know, welcoming everyone to come. Even now, there's pretty much a total unity, bipartisan unity. It's true of foreign policy in general. For instance, arms to Saudi Arabia for destroying Yemen for the last almost 10 years. There are a few oppose it, and the newer members, young members, they call the squad. But in general, it passes without any problem, any kind of military action and immigration policy. Whatever their rhetoric is, they're all always doing the same thing. We now go to the old two meeting sketch. Hi, Mr. President. Better hope change the second. Thank you for taking this meeting. Pleasure to have you here. Feel free to sit down. Oh, thank you. It's a comfy chair. You want a glass of water? Sure, please. Thank you. Maria, too. So, 
The indigenous land claims. Yeah, the indigenous land claims. It's pretty clear that something needs to be done here to recompense. Thank you, Maria. You're the best. You know, you ran a really inspiring campaign. Your vision of an America that upholds all people and contends with all different kinds of systemic oppression. I thought that was a great vision that you laid out there. You know, these land back cases are going to be fighting their way through the courts for many years. And it would just be really powerful to have you on our side for this. I'm a big supporter of having a multicultural society. I just think it's so beautiful to have like a diverse mosaic. Sure. A nation of immigrants, if you will. Like JFK said, you have people who come from Europe, people who come from Africa, and you have indigenous people. And they're all just sort of immigrant groups Uh, that through that mosaic emerges unique American greatness. Like you can almost imagine all the different races holding hands um, and making America great. I'm in favor of immigration. I'm in favor of people holding hands. Uh, I'm not sure if you got confused. So we were talking about indigenous land claim cases. Right. So I'm just saying, I don't sure if I want to be, you know, midterms coming up and everything, getting out there, arguing for special rights for any specific group of immigrants. It's more like everyone is equal. Well, sure. I'm not saying everyone isn't equal, but historically, indigenous people aren't immigrants, right? That's kind of what the word means. Well, we all have to come from somewhere. Sure. If you go back far enough. Right. But I'm just saying that, like, all the land was taken from them in a multi-century long project of that's the way it was back conquest yeah that is the way it was that that is the way it was back then yeah yeah and it's bad and we should well it's gotten a lot better too it's actually it has gotten better but i mean yeah so it's gotten better why would you want to reopen that whole wound well no i'm just kind of talking about finally closing the like finally dealing with it you know i think it's time i I think it's Look, we could draft up a rainbows and bunnies bill about anything. Good luck getting it through Congress and Senate, plus the court challenges. That's what I'm saying. It's going to be difficult. That's why we need you in our corner, right? This could be your legacy. You could be remembered for this. This Honestly, I'm pretty convinced by this old Irish myth. And I'm not Irish myself, but this old Irish myth actually is pretty compelling that the Irish were here first. I mean, yep. Back in the day, the Irish came to North America. And then after that, indigenous people came over the land bridge about 12,000 years ago, pushed the Irish out. I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I can gab all day. Sorry, I haven't even gone through. I have a whole presentation with slides and... Yeah, I've got another meeting. I've got two meetings. Oh. It's a two-meeting sketch, so... So I'll put you down for a maybe? You can put me down as a no, for sure. I believe in a much flatter version of history, if that makes sense. And bye. And I hope I can see you at the polls, at the midterms. Gotta keep them out. Janice, can you send my 1130 in? Oh, President Hope Change, thank you for making the time. Here he comes, the new guy on the block. Congratulations Uh, on the big win. Oh, thank you. That means a lot, you know. Some people don't take well to primarying our own, but honestly, that guy had to go. You know, I knew that you and I would see eye to eye on this. You're a big inspiration, big part of the reason I got into politics in the first place. You want water? Please. Maria, too? Thank you. You're the best. Mm -hmm. So what can I do you for? What, What about brings you down? So a few of the other progressive Congress people and I, we have drafted a bill called the Safe Refuge Act. Really, it's just putting into practice what the Statue of Liberty says. 
You know, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That's what America's about. We're a nation of immigrants. We need to stop caging people and putting them in jail for trying to come here. It's the greatest country in the world. Am I right? I love the Statue of Liberty. Oh, me too. Can we count on your support for the bill? I mean, how can we strategize your support for this bill? Maria, two... What's your stuff? Rye? Two rye whiskeys. Oh, at this hour, it's only 11.30. So here, I know that you're a new kid on the block. I've been around for a long time. Let me explain this. Because we like to get things done around here. And I'm going to teach you something important. Oh, cool. Thank you, Maria. Here, drink. I don't usually drink, but I don't want to look weak in front of the president. So I'll just... So here's the rub. Yes, we are a nation of immigrants. But not a nation of refugees. Uh, okay. We're a nation of immigrants. So let's think about the difference. Refugee is a status in relation to what sort of circumstances you're leaving. Immigration is a country or body allowing people to come in. So basically saying, like, yes, you may come in, formalizing it. Immigration is when a hundred people come at you and you let two people in. The first immigration law was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm-hmm. Before that, people would just sort of freely come and go and associate without any sort of legal process like that. So that's actually what immigration means. There's more rejections than exceptions in immigration. So when I say that we're a nation of immigrants... You're saying we're a nation of those two out of a hundred. Right, exactly. Are you familiar with the expression cream of the crop? Yeah, and I was always confused because like, I thought cream came from cow milk usually or other kinds right. of milk not how milk. confused were you by that very very confused so it's a mixed metaphor i, 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 I do understand what it means you're selecting from a large group picking the best ones. right the like the doctors the, the lawyers don't they need doctors in the other countries yes though? right okay i mean but you can't always get what you want Right. And you couldn't be a, let's be realistic, you couldn't be a nation of refugees. You'd be up to your eyes in refugees in a minute. You think the buses get crowded now. Good luck finding a parking space in refugee America. Oh my, this is uh, not what I was... Have you ever considered altering foreign policy so that perhaps in the future there are fewer refugees? You know, there's a lot of wars going on around the mm-hmm. globe and yeah. even places where there's not wars, you know, things happen. Maybe intelligence services or paramilitary groups that we know about or, you know, you know how it all goes. I don't have to tell you. Obviously, terribly saddened to see this stuff happening. Of course. But silver lining there's a silver lining to every cloud and i'm not saying that's not a cloud but the silver lining is that you get a higher level of cream the more crop you put in to the creamery you know the more that we're filtering the more we can find the diamonds in the rough so when you say it's a nation of immigrants you're not saying that you would support the safe refuge act because I want that cream. The Safe Refuge Act is specifically kind of about... The whole crop. Right. That's a lot to take in, and that shot actually... I, like I said, I don't drink a lot. It's um, oh, kind of dizzy. Thanks, thanks for the meeting, though. You have just stepped into a larger world, Padawan. <laughs> you ever see Star Wars? Yeah. I love uh, that shit. Me and my kids watch it all the time. Any free moment I get. And the new ones? Whew. I, I nice mean, talking to you, kid. Okay, bye. And that was President Better Hope Change the Second, 
taking two meetings related to his belief that America is a nation of immigrants. Hey, we got to talk for a second about how the show happens and what causes it to happen, what force causes it to happen. It is the support and patronage of a community of donors that seriously wrong beautiful geniuses on Patreon who give two, six, or $20 a month at $6 a month getting access to everything. I want to thank our beautiful genius patrons for making this show happen. I was sort of like hip to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz by a member of the Discord server who suggested that we reach out to her. I read her book. I was like, this is great. And we did. So patreon.com slash seriously wrong. It's how the show happens. For $6 a month, you get access to our whole back catalog, bonus episodes, etc. That's how we do things around here. So I just thought I'd throw that out there so everyone's aware that they have that option if they like the show. Because maybe they someone would listen, they'd really like the show and they wouldn't know that was an option. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta let people know. <laughs> you don't want anyone to be left out. We don't run ads for a variety of reasons, so this is how we do it instead. We appreciate so greatly everyone who chips in. It makes all the difference in the world. It allows us to do the show we love doing and talk to amazing guests like Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And uh, now back to the show. I was totally fascinated to see how recent this narrative was and how that it was JFK's book as part of this priming for his presidential campaign in a self-interested way that he was the son of immigrants and that this nation of immigrants narrative came out of his book or was popularized by his book. Because I guess when you think of having a nation of immigrants, this narrative about what the United States is, it would imply that this has been a conception of themselves that the United States has had a long time. But I guess it would be sort of surprising to the founding fathers to hear that America is a nation of immigrants. <laughs> based on their own experience and positions. Yeah, especially Alexander Hamilton, who, you know, is portrayed popularly as an immigrant himself. And actually, he put forward the Alien and Sedition Acts to prevent any immigration that wasn't Anglo-Saxon. So he was really the leader of not establishing any rules for immigration, because very clearly it was meant to be people who come for property and to assist in the taking of the whole continent a settler colonialism that was outlined in the Northwest Ordinance and in the Constitution. I very much recommend really analyzing the Constitution. What you can find online, a long law review article, 95 pages, absolutely worth reading, called The Savage Constitution by Greg Abraski, who's a Stanford law professor. It's very important. It's where I got the fiscal military state concept. And Read that and understand how the Constitution itself built into it is this blueprint for keeping things as they are, and it's considered sacred by everyone. And the Constitution is irredeemable. Something that you mentioned in the book is the doctrine of discovery, which is part of U.S. law to this day. You know, very few people know that one of the fundamental laws that the Supreme Court said was constitutional during the Jacksonian era was the medieval doctrine of discovery that was created by the Holy Roman Empire in 1453. It was a papal bull that gave the Portuguese monarch the right to own and possess all of Africa and its people. 
So this was the pathway and the permission to enslave all the people of Africa. They took West Africa first, you know, that Portuguese area, and then into Angola, Mozambique, and so forth. So that was the first thing very early. And then in 1492, Isabella and Ferdinand of the north of what became Spain in the 15th century, there was no Portugal, there was no Spain, there was no Italy, none of these countries existed. They were all city-states and territories that were under the Holy Roman Empire. The Spanish monarchs, they sent Columbus, the mercenary Columbus, to find the Spice Islands. Indonesia was really the site. It wasn't India they were trying to get to. They knew how to get to India. <laughs> it was Indonesia where, uh, you know, nutmeg and tulips, <laughs> all these things that became fads and more expensive than diamonds are today. Columbus thought they could avoid the Muslim routes and go directly to Indonesia from Spain, not knowing that there was this hemisphere in between. He just went west. And then he bumped into what he thought was Indonesia. Turned out it wasn't Indonesia. Came to be called West Indies. He went several times and then he was put in prison (laughs) in chains. The Spanish kept criminalizing all their mercenaries after they did their job, it seemed like. So then another papal bull, 1493, that the Spanish, the monarchs of the north, owned the entire Western Hemisphere. And then a couple of years later, the Portuguese had gone to what became Brazil and had an argument that they wanted to extend their African heritage. So another papal bull that divided down the middle the Western Hemisphere between the Portuguese monarch and the Spanish monarch. So that's why you have Brazil jutting out toward Africa is Portuguese speaking and the rest until the British came. It was all Spanish. Those are the papal bulls that make up the doctrine of discovery. And you would think there would be no connection with the U.S. Constitution. Why would there be a relevance? But actually, this was European international law. The British embraced it. The French Republic, when it went from a monarchy to a republic with the French Revolution, they also embraced the doctrine of discovery. So it didn't end up just being monarchs, but the European republics, including the United States. Jefferson, when he was president, said in a speech that we take for granted that we now have the privileges of the doctrine of discovery to take the continent. That's when they started thinking about invading Mexico. And it was still Spanish, but revolution was going on. It was very clear Mexico was going to become independent. So he sent out spies that were called army officers to map the territory illegally. So this was 1821, the Mexican independence, and immediately slavers moved into the Texas province of Mexico and so forth. The 1820s, Andrew Jackson as a general had for 10 years been militarily colonizing and taking land, more and more land from the Cherokees in Georgia. And then a missionary to the Cherokees actually brought the case to the Supreme Court that the Cherokees had the right to self-determination. They had the right to independence and their land base. So the Marshall Court, John Marshall's court, made this series of decisions about the Cherokee cases. There were three different cases. He based it in the naming 
and including thereby in the Constitution, the doctrine of discovery. And actually, he used the terminology of domestic dependent nations, but validated that they were nations with autonomy, internal self-determination, being the platform of which the United States had political control. But he did say they should be able to keep their land. And basically, Jackson, you know, become president by that time and told Marshall, you made your law, but I had the army and started the massive forced relocation. And the Cherokees wouldn't leave. So they were the last to be herded up and driven out. And they had to go and pull them out of their homes without anything to take with them. Half their number died. That's the trail of tears story. They were determined to stay, but they were forcibly removed. In the book, you say that there's at least four instances where the U.S. state engaged in what clearly meets the U.N. standard for genocide, and that would be one of them? Yes. Oh, definitely. The forced relocation of people is one of the acts enumerated in the Genocide Convention. Settler colonialism has this inherent aspect of genocide. They want the land. They want it for agriculture or whatever. And so they want to get rid of the people who own it, control it, and replace them. So that's different from standard colonialism, which they try to build an indigenous administration they work through. In South America, they call them the caciques, or say the British in India and their development of the Raj that did the actual carrying out of British rule. And very few British ever went and actually lived there. They only went as administrators or travelers or adventurers or whatever. And the Genocide Convention, it's a very simple document. It's everywhere online. You know, it's so easy to access. It's crystal clear, no legalese or anything, exactly what constitutes acts of genocide. And yet people insist they use the Holocaust as the bar. And the whole purpose of the Genocide Convention, it's called the prevention and punishment of acts of genocide. So prevention was that this never happened again. So the whole point was, looking back in history, as Ralph Limpkin did, you know, he wrote the narrative which supported the Genocide Convention and its terminology back at the pogroms during the Middle Ages and into why Jews came as refugees to the United States in the 1870s and 80s from pogroms, their villages being burned, being run out. These went on over and over and over again. And this is the platform on which Nazism was built, the final solution, they called it, the final solution of the Jews. And It had been going on for centuries, so you can see what this will lead to. And the main thing is prevention, to detect those things that will lead to genocide. And it outlines that forcibly removing children from the people, that in itself is an act of genocide. And of course, the forced boarding schools in Canada and the United States, Australia, New Zealand, these other settler places... They don't have to kill anyone. I mean, they kill a lot. We know from the cemeteries that are being uncovered now, these children died very young. They were mistreated. They were stripped of their culture, their language, and they became lost people, lost generations. And it went on from the 1870s 
to 1960s. So this is clearly genocide, even if no one died, just their removal alone, forcing people out of their territories is an act of genocide. Assimilation is also an act of genocide, forcible assimilation. Anything that would make it unlikely that the group could maintain cohesion and exist as a people. And that's exactly what the United States tried to do. I go into great detail in this book and previous ones outlining that and giving examples of, let's say, the genocide trials in Cambodia. And some people were confused because the mass killing were Kimmers, killing Kimmers, you know, Kimmer regime, killing the majority ethnic Kimmers. Those were war crimes. There were war crimes trials. But genocide doesn't have to be a war crime. It doesn't have to happen during war, even though the Holocaust did. That's not the standard. It doesn't have to be. War crimes are one thing, but the specificity of the Genocide Convention was applied only to the minority groups, the indigenous minority groups, the mountain people. The Khmer Rouge did drive them out, kill many, many died of starvation. Those then were genocide trials. So it's a very specific thing, but it's not narrow. It's just very specific. And genocide is the only collective international law. Everything else is about individual rights. Well, some are about states' rights, of course, state self-determination and all. But it's the only thing that has a non-state collective protection. So it refers specifically to ethnic or religious groups. The International Criminal Court supposedly deals with genocide. It doesn't exactly, you know, I think states, which, you know, are the members of the criminal court, are reluctant to actually enforce the terms of the Genocide Convention because, well, the United States has so many counts against it. And by the way, the United States Senate refused to ratify the Genocide Convention. And the discussions in Congress about it were very interesting. Well, already the black delegation had gone to the United Nations with a petition called We Charge Genocide, led by Paul Robeson, the famous opera singer, and W.B. Du Bois and others. So that had already happened immediately after the Genocide Convention went in. So they talked about that, maybe slavery, even though it had a statute of limitations, which would be 1949 when it went into effect. They also expressed fear of Native Americans. They said Native Americans could possibly try to use this. Their discussions were very open. It was an all-white Senate at the time, you know, and they expressed these fears that it would be used. Jim Crow was still solidly in effect at that time. So they didn't ratify it until 1988, 40 years. So it only applies in the United States to anything that happened after 1988. But I still think Black people who suffered under Jim Crow should be able to use that. I think there are arguments. In fact, for Native people, uh, certain conditions that could lead to the destruction of the group. One is the very colonial relationship, the trusteeship, where already there was a congressional 1953 termination act to terminate all. They can do that in a minute. They could do it again. Any state can make a lot of exceptions. So they have a lot of legal exceptions when they ratified it. But I think the Genocide Convention is terribly important as a measure 
when you're looking at history of what happened, even if you can't take it to court if it happened in 1776 or 1820, it still fits within the guidelines of what genocide is. I want to talk about something, Aaron, that I have called to myself the recourse to amorality. It's a set of arguments that you encounter when you talk about colonial history, settler colonialism to other people. And I'm thinking specifically of people I know who are well-meaning, liberal. But when this issue comes up, they use the set of arguments. They're all kind of like these just-so statements. The underlying argument of the statement is, and therefore, this matter is amoral. So what they do is when you talk about something horrible that happened, if it happened 50 or 100 years ago, then they're going to be saying, back then it was different. Some variation on back then it was different. And then in parentheses, the unstated part. And therefore, that matters amoral to the present. And that's just one. There's a series of arguments that they're all making the argument, this matter should be considered outside of the realm of ethical deliberation. I think there's also an implied, with especially well-meaning people at this point, we fixed it now. Like back then it was different, but we're already on the path towards getting better, so I don't have to think about it. I think a lot of the time what people want when they're saying things like this is, you know, I don't have to think about it. The five main arguments that I identified in this recourse to amorality, back then it was different, everyone did it, they were no angels, it's too late to do anything, and my favorite one by far, what's done is done. And the reason that one is my favorite one is because it doesn't make sense as a sentence. <laughs> it's tautological. Like. Yeah, what's done is done. Well, true enough. I think any sentence where the same word on... What's coffee is coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be hard to find what's different is different. I was trying to break it by putting in some contradictory thing there, but even where... Yeah, any sort of forward sentence that starts with what's, then has a word, and then is, and then that same word again. Yeah, it's basically A is A with what's in front of it. Like, what's A is A? I don't want you to have painted this wall yellow. Well, it is yellow. Like, what's done is done. Okay, but should we paint it something else? It doesn't mean the conversation ender that it gets used as, if you look at the words. Right. When it's applied in a specific context like that as a conversation ender, it implies this greater argument of the work to repaint the fence at this point isn't worth the trade-off of not meeting the expectations or something like that. It has all these implied messages in it to even be coherent. Implying that the only reason you'd be bringing up historical wrongs is because you think what's done can be changed. Like, we can get a time machine, go back and change this. And they're like, oh, no, no, didn't you know? There are no time machines. We can't change history. So what's done is done. So you obviously didn't get that from what you were saying. Oh, I'm a naive leftist. I thought there was still time travel. Right. I was yeah. spreading awareness about colonial history because I wanted to use a time machine to go alter the course of history. Thank you. What's done is done. Huh? Really? Yeah. Huh? That's a load off your mind, hey? You know what? I'm, I'm going to start investing. There's bigger <laughs> things to do in the world. You know, they were no angels. That's one yeah. that gets a lot of attention through media coverage, the way that people who die by the hands of police are covered. It's like a trope, but it's something that you see in this historical context as well. Again, not motivated by that sort of visceral maliciousness of the white supremacist, but still being rooted in some of those same sentiments, I think, unconsciously in the, the liberal response to this. 
Like the idea that, again, it's kind of implied that you could only think that was wrong if you believe that they were angels, that everyone involved was a perfect angel. And like the victim of some sort of a moral act needs to be an angel in order to care about it. When obviously there's no such thing as angels and (laughs) someone could have done something wrong and then still be stolen from or beaten up or enslaved. It doesn't mean that it all evens out or something like, oh, they were enslaved, but they were actually pretty mean as well. So. Yeah, it's kind of a whataboutism, too. I think for a lot of people, it feels like you're shitting on, like, if these are white liberals, especially, like, their ancestors. And so there's this defensive, well, it's not like they were uniquely evil or anything. Everyone did bad things. You know, maybe we weren't angels, but they weren't angels either. Humans war and fight and battle is how it is kind of thing. What's done is done. It's too late to do anything. The more nationalist perspective is to be like, they weren't angels, but we kind of were. Whereas the liberal perspective is to be like, they weren't angels, no one was angels, therefore it's amoral. We don't need to ethically deliberate on it in the present. Yeah, everyone did it. When you hear about stuff that happens in the past when you're young, I remember feeling like when I was in my early teens, I thought the 80s were like this far away, separate era of history. And it's like, I was born in 1990, as soon as possible after the 80s was over. And my perception of the 80s was like this mystical up is down kind of land. I was born in the 80s and I still kind of felt that way. It definitely felt like history in a way that the 90s still don't. So the idea that civil rights struggles happened in the 50s and 60s felt like that might as well have been a thousand years ago. Yeah. Even though it was 25 years. And now that I'm more than 25 years in the opposite direction, it's like, holy shit, that was actually extremely close. Like, in the grand scheme of things, I came really, really close to being born during the civil rights struggle. And then you look at the bigger structures, like I came really close to being born during slavery, American slavery. You look at the big picture here of history and you're like, wow, we're really close to colonization. Colonization was this huge stretch of time and the post-colonial era much smaller in comparison. Even if you thought that you were completely out of it, you're still basically hugging it. It occurred to me that this, back then it was different, this was all a long time ago stuff, comes from a very childlike, literally childlike view of history. (laughs) That's funny you say. I was literally just thinking that this has to do with, I think, how things are taught in school. I guess maybe it's not even just school. It's just I'm associating that with being young and learning things. But that sense of everything before me is ancient history, that childlike sense is definitely present. But I do feel like we could do more to root people in history in the way we teach children about things that are more contemporary. So I had this experience of talking to a family member of mine And it was like clockwork. All of these things just sort of bubbled up. And I was talking about stuff that I'd read in this book and talked about with Roxanne. And all these things are coming from this really naive place, but also just being in the backdrop of the society that normalizes these things, the sort of ambient settler colonialism that this, I'd say, liberal but apolitical person is repeating the stuff that is actually kind of like really far right, really far right in its implications. 
I had an argument recently with just someone online who was kind of making the more conservative versions of these things, saying that not just everyone did it, but conquest ruled the day. Not just they were no angels, but they were especially brutal and that Europeans invented freedom. Just really kind of like Western chauvinist shit. But like one of the things he said was, get over it. We won. It's a dead fight. And I was just pointing out that there's been multiple court cases, one in Canada, of indigenous people getting land back pretty close to our home, the Squamish nation getting a land settlement of like pretty prime real estate here in Vancouver recently. Those are big court cases that have legal precedent. And the idea that what's done is done is not just silly because the whole activity of politics is continuously updating and changing the institutions through the processes that exist or through outside processes. But it's also ridiculous just because people are literally fighting these battles in court currently and winning. It's not a dead fight that's gone and passed. This struggle has been going on since colonialism started, because people have been fighting back against being pushed out of their land and genocided or enslaved. To say what's done is done, it ends up functioning as a way of delegitimizing actually existing movements. The land claim that you mentioned about that the Squamish nation got in Kitsilano, just to give an idea of the scale of history here, they got that land in the year 2000. The newspaper, the Globe and Mail at the time, said that this settlement would heal wounds from, quote, one of the darker moments in the province's history. When was that? The darker moment in the province's history? Just 90 years before, in 1910 or 1911, something like that. The newspaper called it one of the darker moments in history, but it's one human life cycle ago. What happened in 1910? The conservative premier Richard McBride forced the Squamish people to abandon their waterfront lands at Kitsilano Point Ah, to enable the city to expand. Oh, they burned down their homes that were on that land not long ago. Yeah, it's too late to do anything. Well, like, let's be honest. What's done isn't done because being is becoming. We're part of processes that are in the process of changing. Things have been changing our entire lives. They're going to continue changing after we're dead. The universe is comprised of vast amount of ongoing change. So what's done isn't done. It's not too late to do things if we deem them necessary. And I think an honest look at the history of North America, and not just the history of North America, but the history of global colonialism, the slave trade and stuff, it's not that long ago. It's left marks on every corner of the planet. It's probably the most significant single historical event of recent history. The systems we use today were formed in the era of colonialism. It's far from late to do anything. In fact, it's probably the most appropriate time to do something in history. If you tried to do it before colonialism, that'd be entirely inappropriate. How can you challenge and abolish something that doesn't yet exist? But now that we're in the era that's shaped by it, it's not too late to do anything at all. It's sort of a silly idea. It sounds like that guy that you argued with on the internet was kind of a piece of shit. But I feel like I at least won the argument. Like on the Europeans invented freedom thing, I had all these points from the David Wengrow episode we just did in my head about indigenous influences on the Enlightenment, and I had the Sumerian word for freedom, Amagi, that you mentioned on a previous episode. So it's like, places had words for freedom before the Enlightenment. I totally won this keyboard warrior debate. One comment section at a time. 
that's the interesting thing about these arguments pushed as a recourse to amorality type thing. Like we shouldn't moralize or ethicize or talk through the ethics of this. But then what you were describing in the comment section, you have this very toxic, explicitly hierarchical settler historiography, like might makes right freedom and democracy kind of stuff. Really creepy that uses some of the exact same arguments in context that I think that the well-meaning liberals, well-meaning enough anyways, apolitical libs would object to the implications of their arguments if they saw them in the full context. It's all tied into this really toxic nationalist stuff. Yeah, it's two different strands of defensiveness about reckoning with this history. Hello and welcome to Wrongtown News. Today we've got a special report. Fiscal military state mania has gripped the minds of our young people. This is the type of mania you'd usually see for trading cards or perhaps some sort of toy investing product. Tamagotchis. Something along those lines. But instead, this time, it's understanding an idea that's gripped people's hearts and imaginations. You know, understanding the fiscal military state and its centrality in the history of American colonialism, it's the biggest trend on TikTok, Twitter, I actually learned, I learned about it from my daughter. She was doing this dance explaining it. And oh, I was like, right, what the is fiscal this? fiscal military explainer dance. It's apparently something all the kids are doing. I don't think I can do it, but it goes like, you're like this, and <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. I think that's pretty close. My daughter could tell you if I did it right. I have no idea. I have a note here from the CEOs of all local bookstores saying to please stop swarming them. They don't have any history books on this topic left. They'll announce more soon. Yeah, the mayor has been urging caution since the trampling incident yesterday and a local bookstore employee is in stable condition and we were just hoping for the best. So seek online sources. Also today, a professor of history is coming on on the idea of the fiscal military state. If you are about to go trample a bookstore, instead just listen to this and maybe it'll satiate you a little bit. Well, actually, let's just bring them out. Their legs are probably twitching with trampling energy. Trying to get more history books to learn about this. It's the craving so deep. Let's roll the tape. Professor, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure to be here. <clears throat> so the, the fiscal military state actually starts with Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he believed in a strong central government enforced from a strong military that could overtake the lands held by the indigenous nations. And he developed a central bank. Right, the first bank of the United States, very important for funding the post-revolutionary war economy. He entwined the concentration of wealth and the military force as a way to have strong federal power, go to war, overtake the continent, manifest destiny, and over the next 70 years, they did so. So Alexander Hamilton's primary role was helping to build a fiscal military state with enough power to dispossess the indigenous inhabitants. Well, yeah, they displaced people, split land into segments, brought it into the real estate market. The financial engine of the economy is this real estate market and the labor of enslaved Africans enforced by an expansionist military. Thank you so much, Professor. Talk soon. hip-hop star Mia Mimo has just announced that she's broken up with her boyfriend, comedian Dip Dandison, because he did not understand the fiscal military state. And that is the tea. Oh, the lives of those celebrities. 
You know, I always used to think of American colonialism as covered wagons moving across the fields and trading with Indians, but you know, I never thought of it as a sustained period of expansionist pushing people off their land further and further, taking more and more of it. You know, you imagine America having this certain shape, right? Like the flat top, curve on the side, the little dangler. Florida. Florida, yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, America was founded in 1776. You see this outline in your head. No, actually, in 1776, the shape was entirely different. It was a cluster of territory only in, in the East. And through this process, like what America became and is known as versus what it was at its founding is different. That's just one of those things I'm like, this fiscal military state stuff, I understand why it's taking off. I understand why people are trying to grasp and understand it because that's this country. Yeah. So as fiscal military state mania grips the nation, some of our young content creators have struck it big, securing book deals, movie adaptations of explainer videos. And we have one of those such TikTok creators in the studio today. Great to have you with us, Travis Online. All one word, username. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you know, I saw you trying to do the dance earlier. It's more like this this kind of emotion. Whoa, no, that's it. Got it, yeah. (laughs) You know it when you see it. So you have had incredible success from your explainer videos, in particular on the fiscal military state. What would you like our audience to know that's sort of a key point here? Well, if you want the key points, I'd say they're all key points and just hit up my TikTok. But what I'm working on right now is a new video for Manifest Destiny. The widely held attitude that the United States was destined by God to expand all across North America. They just saw themselves as inherently deserving. And that attitude became known as Manifest Destiny. And it actually has some interesting connections to the Nazi idea of Lebensraum, living space. You know, Hitler was actually a fan of the way that the United States fiscal military state was able to do that westward expansion to gain control of such a large territory. And that's kind of what they wanted to repeat in Eastern Europe, in Germany. So, And when can we look forward to your movie? What are you going to be explaining for us in the full-length format? Well, the movie is going to not just be about the fiscal military dance. There's going to be seven new dances in this movie for all these different concepts. It's going to be a big extravagant, kind of like Step Up, Footloose. It's going to be about kids learning to dance and also learning about colonial history and the kind of inherent ties between settler colonialism and genocide. And it's all going to be in there. We're in the script phase right now, and then we'll move into casting. But we didn't want to just talk to the stratified intellectual elite on the show. We also wanted to reach down to the Vox Populi, the voice of the people, and ask people on the street, what is it about this subject that you find so fascinating? And are you really interested in it, or are you just pretending to be interested in it to go along? Like, are you just a trend follower? Are you really sincerely interested in it? So, and here's what they said. Did you know that during the legal process of bringing in the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton specifically said they needed a strong military in order to take out the indigenous people here, and he didn't use that nice of a word for them. You know, fuck Hamilton. That's what I think. I'm a real estate agent, so I make my living selling land here in North America and taking a cut. And so I was like, what? The public land survey system, the PLSS, splitting up the continent into like squares to be sold as real estate as a financial engine for 
military dominance. I'm like, Puh. so yeah, I just had to keep reading. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting, I guess. My friends talk about it a lot. I just like the shirt and the dance. The dance is really cool, too. Maybe I am a bit more of a trend follower. I'm not, I enjoy learning about it, but I don't care about that. Some people really get into all the details. I'm just kind of, I, I like the whole fun, the whole celebration of it, people learning together, all those details, you know. I'm just on board. No, this is something that speaks to me deeply. It has almost nothing to do with everyone all following this trend all at once. I don't care if I'm the last guy on earth. I'm going to keep on studying this. It's not just a trend to me. Well, there you have it. You know, a wide array of voices. Most people seem to really be into learning about this. A few people are maybe just orbiters. But they, hey, they're welcome too. And it's a fad. Well, personally, I think you shouldn't wear the shirt unless you can explain it in detail. But that's just, maybe I'm an elitist about this. But that's all the news that's fit for broadcast this week, folks. Fiscal military state mania is so enormous that it took up all the time of our show. You yeah, get no to other report news on anything this else. Week. That's it. I'd never listened to or watched any of the Alexander Hamilton musical until I was reading this book. And then I went on YouTube and listened to some songs. And I was like, it is really, really staggering the gap between the way that Hamilton is portrayed as this hardworking upstart. And then the reality of the situation of him being involved explicitly in anti-immigrant movements and being involved explicitly in the sort of upholding of the United States and the development of the United States as what you call in the book a fiscal military state to enforce property claims over land, which is being stolen, and also enforce property claims over the bodies of enslaved people. Yes. You know, the musical, what troubled me a lot about it, it was really a nation of immigrants extravaganza. It was surprising because I've been imagining this all this time, what this term implies. And here is a three-hour extravaganza that acts it out exactly as I had planned to write the book. You know, obviously, it was a work of art in terms of staging and music using rap for the first time in a Broadway musical. So people who are just looking at art can think they don't have to look behind it. You know, well, what about the content? I got very involved before I even started this book in 2015, 2016, with there were several historians, not many, but four or five, mostly African-American. <laughs> Ishmael Reed, the great writer and playwright, he wrote a play on Lin-Manuel Miranda, who created the musical. He really takes after Lin-Manuel, not dealing with the fact that he comes from a colony of the United States and Americanizing himself in denial about colonialism. Lin-Manuel portrayed his father going to New York to have a better life and meeting his mother, who was already there from Puerto Rico, looking for a better life as immigrants. And he actually said in interviews that he saw in Alexander Hamilton, his father, that Alexander Hamilton was from a colony, as if New York wasn't a colony. He went to New York, it was a colony. He went from one colony to the other. That is not immigration. That'd be like someone going from California to New York today from one state to another. You wouldn't call them an immigrant. And no one ever had called Hamilton and the immigrant before. But there was a book behind it, Ron Chernoff's best-selling book, 
Chernoff's not a historian, a journalist. His, it just brought out something in, you know, liberals, especially of this, here is the proof, the documentation of the legitimacy of the nation of immigrants. And, you know, even this family story of himself as a child of immigrants, Emmanuel, is from a colony. Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. And I don't know, portraying slave owners as Black people was something I couldn't quite, you know, I'm thinking, what is this about? I mean, there was enthusiasm about that, that the founding fathers were really Black, Black actors playing them. And the play doesn't acknowledge directly that they're slaveholders, or does it? Oh, no, never. Well, one time, Thomas Jefferson is the bad guy in the musical. He's, I don't know, they refer once to him being a slave owner or his slaves, something about the enslaved woman that he had children with. So there's some reference to that. But these black actors making this accusation to black Thomas Jefferson, I don't know, I found it like a mindfuck, if you can use that in your... (laughs) Definitely. We'll play it twice. Like a mindfuck. And then, I don't know, spreading that to Washington Heights, which is populated with Dominicans mainly, but also Puerto Ricans, to put that in young people's minds to forget that they're from either colonies or former colonies like Dominican Republic, occupied places, places where coups have been held. And I don't know, it's cruel. It's just cruel to lie to people. Lemanuel developed a funding, I mean, he was making millions off of it, funding of any K-12 student when the musical came, anywhere it went, they would get in free. So young people were just so excited, young people of color, especially. I was invited to actually give a keynote speech at a large regional educational conference. It was something they hold every year I didn't know about. You know, I'm at the university level, so I don't know very much about K-12. But I was happy to be invited. They wanted me to give the keynote, and I did. And they also had many students. These high school students are involved in the process. I doubt that that was always true, but it was really a very joyful occasion. But it was right after the Hamilton musical had just come to San Francisco and everyone was waiting here. They bought these $5,000 tickets in advance. And anyway, they were so excited and they actually had memorized one section of the play. They asked for permission to act out a 20-minute segment of it. And so they were practicing that. They were so proud of it, these young students. They took me down to this theater area outside, like a little Greek theater, to perform it for me. And I almost got nauseated. I have to say, I said, I have to write this book now. I just can't keep putting it off. It was distressing to see that somehow that was liberating as a kind of neoliberal dulling. I think it had a mass effect. And I was very, very happy to see the Black Lives Matter protests and their success last summer. But I do think that there's this other, you know, where people were politicized in another direction of being accepted as Americans, almost like becoming white. I think it's messed up a lot of minds. And 
created confusion, if nothing else. These things are kind of contagious, especially if it's art. If you're not appreciating it, you're sort of considered a dullard or something. You're not with the flow, you know, of what's good. There wasn't a single critic, official critic, that made any kind of criticism, nothing but praise. So it was always, you know, just academic historians writing op-ed pieces, not many of them at that. I think I read every one of them and you could read them all in a few hours. I guess the way that this plays out in discourse is, I mean, with the Trump campaign and presidency being so strongly anti-immigrant, and then there's this liberal push of, like, it's a fight for the soul of America to be like, no, America's really like this. It's not like Trump. And what your book lays out, I think, really expertly and in detail, that Trump is very much in line, unfortunately, with the reality of the history of America. The anti-refugee sentiment in the United States, which they call immigration control, is unsurpassed by any other country. It's not good in Europe and the European Union or Britain, but it's not as draconian as the United States restrictions and laws and treatment at the border, especially under Trump. I think it's the first time that anyone vocalized. You know, it's a wonderful book by Jean Guerrero about Stephen Miller, who was in charge of Trump's immigrant policy as his main personal advisor. And he's a a fascist, absolutely hates immigrants, but especially Mexicans. With Trump out of power, he's very active advising Republicans in Congress. They call on him for their rhetoric and bills that they can pass. I do a profile in the book of a border chief in the 1950s that actually became a white nationalist. He already was probably, but a white nationalist and started the Second Amendment Foundation in 1973. And then that that organization took over the National Rifle Association in 1977 and made it into a white nationalist organization that was a border chief of Operation Wetback, the deportation of one and a half million Mexicans, many of whom were actual citizens, rounding them up in trains, planes, and boats, even. And that was the official name for it? Yeah. Oh, Operation Wetback, that was. Yeah, so I just wanted to stop on that just to point that, okay, that is the official name for it, that the U.S. government called it that. And they were like, this is our policy. Yeah. Unfortunately, that was it. And that's another odd thing about Kennedy. He was the congressional that put that through, the deportation. He was in the Senate at that time and never mentions Mexicans or the border in his book. So a little bit of lack of sensitivity on his part for fellow Catholics that he Wow, yeah. So celebrating a nation of immigrants and the musical, it seems so vulgar in light of the reality. Welcome to the Arts and Culture Corner of Seriously Wrong. We are going to be reviewing Hamilton, the musical. Hamilton delighted audiences with its hip portrayal of founding father Alexander Hamilton through a series of, what is it, 25 songs? Sounds right. Or 30 songs? Two and a half hours of songs, yeah. Our arts and culture correspondent Aaron has had a chance to awkwardly watch Hamilton over the holidays with his family. It was so weird because we had just done this interview and then a couple days before Christmas we were sitting there, my brother's scrolling Disney Plus and they're like, oh, we should watch Hamilton. 
Have you seen that? Have you heard anything about that? <laughs> I was trying to remember stuff from the interview just to like have something to say. I was like, I know that's got some criticisms for portraying slave owners as black people, but I was like, sure, let's watch Hamilton. I haven't seen Hamilton. I did listen to a handful of the songs. I'll just say out of the gate, these are catchy songs. Like a musical person would be like, yes. In terms of my taste in musicals, I prefer a musical that goes back and forth between talking and singing just to like get my bearings. I find it hard to connect with characters who are only singing. I'm not really like a big singer. I don't really feel like a good singer. And as a result, when other people sing near me and they sing well near me, I kind of feel like they're showing off. <laughs> so I feel the same way about even a musical. These characters, they're singing all the time. They seem full of themselves to me. And maybe it was also hard to connect because it just has a weird story. The story is of an immigrant, quote unquote, Alexander Hamilton, who comes to America, helps George Washington in the Revolutionary War, creates a genius banking system for the government, has an affair, admits to the affair. His son gets in a public argument about the affair and gets shot in a duel. And then Hamilton's depressed and then he gets shot in a duel. Like the facts of the story are so like tragic in a way, but the play doesn't seem like a tragedy. Like as an inspiring mythological story about how hardworking immigrants come to America and change the world. It's kind of weird to put cheating on your wife so bad that your son dies. Because <laughs> like that's his life. So you've got to put it in there because it's one of the main things that happens. But they could have done like a really interesting musical that talked more about the weird conflict between all these ideals of freedom they're singing about that they're fighting for to get freedom from the British and create this great country and whatnot. The tension between that and the fact that they're committing genocide against the people who currently lived there. But instead, we're like listening to debates about the banking system and Slavery does get mentioned, but all of the mentions of it are kind of weird. Alexander Hamilton's with this guy, John Laurens, who proposes drafting slaves into the military during the Revolutionary War, offering them freedom if they decide to join up. The slaveholders are obviously against this. It's like, oh, they're against the slaveholders to give the slaves freedom. Like, it's kind of a good thing, and that's how it's presented. But it's still just like they need soldiers and they're holding freedom over the head of these enslaved people to like force them to join their war. Or that was the plan. It didn't end up happening. His great plan to help the slaves that didn't go through or whatever. Yeah, to give them an opportunity to fight and die for the society which enslaved them in exchange for freedom. And then there's also a line where he refers to himself and his friends as radical manumissionist abolitionists. And I heard abolitionist when I was watching it, but I didn't know what the other word meant. So he was part of this manumissionist society that advocated for like slightly better things about slavery. Like, oh, you shouldn't be able to capture freed black people and bring them back to other states to make them slaves there. They were like reformist. Let's make slavery a little better and maybe eventually get rid of it in the long, long term. And they kind of conflate that with abolitionist in the play, which Hamilton wasn't an abolitionist. His wife becomes an abolitionist after he dies, and they talk about that in the play too. 
They never mention that she comes from a major slaveholding family and that part of what Alexander Hamilton used his good skills of doing money things for was helping people with slave deals like her family specifically. They may have purchased or rented slaves at various times. There's records that are unclear. Hamilton's grandson said that they did have slaves at one point. It is like, especially having just done this interview, experiencing the American exceptionalist narrative presented through this lens of Hamilton was on the right side of slavery the whole time. And, you know, let's not mention Native Americans once. It's pretty hard to enjoy, despite the songs being technically good. The Democrats just had some cast members of Hamilton perform at the January 6th anniversary or something <laughs> like that. It was performed for Barack Obama. U.S. liberal Democrats loved this musical. Do you have any reflection or insight, having watched it, why they would connect with it? Yeah, I think it gives you permission to root for the Founding Fathers and feel warm feelings towards America, like viewed through this lens. It's like we're bringing everyone in. We can all celebrate it together. It can be an inclusive thing where we highlight the contributions of immigrants like Hamilton. There's a lot of feminist moments. The women get some songs. As I mentioned, they talk about his wife's life work after Hamilton dies because she doesn't die in a duel and actually lives a long life. There's things about it that I think are good. Like compared to the most patriotic conservative Donald Trump 1776 commission project to bring back patriotic school like compared to that it's pretty good <laughs> but like yeah even the feminist stuff was weird because his song when he's cheating on his wife is like oh no how do i say no to this i want to say no to this and it basically feels like she's entrapping him into sex right because it's all told through song so him cheating on his wife is told as a story through song <laughs> yeah like she comes to him to ask for money and help and then he gives her a bit of money and then she's just like oh please have sex with me please hamilton and then he's like oh ooh, should i and then oh but how can i say no the song doesn't imply him having a lot of agency in that situation the, the affair just kind of like happens to him and he's like, oh, whoops. <laughs> so yeah, if you like plays that have great music and ignore historical atrocities, wherein the main characters are adults who constantly getting in public arguments and challenging each other to shoot each other in public and then getting shot and dying, this is the play for you. You know, I think I'm going to put that on my two skip list. I'm going to skip it, but... Obviously, I wish all the performers the best in their careers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and shout out to Lin-Manuel Miranda said on Twitter, he tweeted, all the criticisms are valid. Basically, some things I didn't even think of putting in, some things I couldn't put in because it's too short. I just thought all the criticisms are valid is a nice non-combative thing to say that welcomes people to participate in talking about the history here based on this play. It's, it's a nice thing to see from him on this, to not be like weirdly defensive about it or whatever. Yeah, all the criticisms are valid is a really generous yeah. statement to his critics. <laughs> like literally anything you could say about a musical is true. It is wrong that way. Yeah, he probably didn't mean all of them, but all of the ones from historians writing op-eds and stuff. Probably ours, too. 
and that was the Seriously Wrong Arts and Culture Corner. Thanks for listening. If we're taking the nation of immigrant narrative, putting it aside because it just doesn't match the facts, it's, it is not a great lens of analysis. And we're filling in that gap with some of the things we've talked about today of the U.S. as a militaristic settler nation built on genocide, the theft of land, human bondage and slavery, according to an ideology of white supremacy and patriarchy and all of these things being sort of defining features of what America was and how America has developed and what America is. What should we do now in the present with this narrative? I mean, the Nation of Immigrants narrative tells us like, support immigrants, everyone's immigrants. What does this narrative tell us about what we should do for the future? I do think at some point, and even Marx said this, at some point in time, anyone who's trying to change a society to a better society, that ideology actually becomes central. And I think that's where we are now. I think our left, left liberal or activists, that we don't take ideology seriously enough, that white nationalism is an ideology. And it can't be counteracted with liberalism or simply talking about racism or dissecting it. There's so many lies around the history of the United States, so many things left out. I mean, I did a doctorate in history, and it's just what's left out. Even today, you might find some of the stuff in dissertations that never get published and all. If you go snooping, you can find a lot of stuff, but something that might be a bestseller. There's a lot that's really good on racism and slavery and the Civil War, and that civil rights movement really generated that. And that's a good archive. But for instance, during the Civil War, it seems important that the army was still busy suppressing the Dakota people in Minnesota, putting 300 of them on trial. And then Lincoln says, no, you know, make it fewer. So it's like 37, the largest mass hanging in the United States. That was during the Civil War, height of the Civil War. The wars against the Apaches just continued unabated during that time. The Sand Creek Massacre of the Northern Cheyenne in Colorado on their reservation with a white flag up and they're massacred completely. These are things happening during the Civil War, and they never appear in any chapter or book on the Civil War. So we're getting an incomplete history. And in general, leaving out the settler colonialism and what it is, of course, we have to start with that. So I think saying these things publicly, but first you got to learn them. You know, people have to learn them, and it's not that hard. In terms of what we can do, I think those of us who are woke, <laughs> we say that, we don't do enough in relation to immigration. There are some wonderful people who devote themselves to immigration. Many of them are from immigrant families themselves. And of course, many are Mexican Americans or Central Americans or, you know, the Chinese immigration services, at least here in California, are very strong. But the more generalized left around race and class and women's rights have never, you know, really taken up seriously immigration. It's interesting that Jewish synagogue that was the mass killing there in Pittsburgh 
a few years ago, they were targeted because that particular liberal synagogue devoted themselves to assisting refugees on the border, assisting them to get asylum. And that's why they were targeted. The guy wrote his reasons why he was targeting them. There are quite a few churches. My publisher is owned by the Unitarian Church, so I'm very proud that they do a lot of work on immigration, and other churches do too, and some of them missionaries for wrong reasons, you know, missionizing like Southern Baptists and evangelicals and all. But I think we don't have a real left developed. Chicanos developed it, young Chinese Americans in universities and the 60s developed really, really excellent organizations assisting immigrants on the border. And of course, in the case of Chinese coming in different places to ports in different places, of course, there are these detention centers and every airport has them in New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles. They're all over the place. They're mostly private corporations that contract So there are people suffering in these places all over the place. And we know up in Washington state, there are several of them. And, you know, it really takes systematic work on the part of activists to find out even where they are and then expose them and uh, attempt to get inside and actually check on conditions and interview people where no one has committed a crime other than desperately trying to either flee violence or persecution or starving to death, those are not crimes. And they've criminalized, um, especially under Trump. Yeah, there's so much in the way these things intersect with each other and the history that you cover in the book. It's really expansive and fascinating. I found when I was reading it, it was hit after hit of reframing of things that I was familiar with. And connecting things I'd heard before within this larger narrative and stuff, thinking about how these trends of militarism, white supremacy, racism, exclusion, border expansionism, and immigration connected to racism, all this stuff is so expertly woven through this book. So I really recommend people give it a read. I'm seeing a lot of details that were left out as a result of reading it. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you, Sean. It was wonderful. Your questions were right to the core. And thank you for such a deep reading of the book and for interviewing me. Definitely our pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Papa, Papa, I heard today that the U.S. is a nation of immigrants. Is that true? Uh, Well, no, not really. Well, here, let, let me try to explain. So America is a nation that started in 1776. But before that, the Americas were a place full of a variety of indigenous cultures, but none of them were the U.S. at that point, right? So what happens starting at the end of the 1400s, but extending for several centuries after that, is an increasing group of settlers arriving from Europe, setting up economic trading posts, and then increasingly over time, bringing in enslaved Africans to be used as economic property, basically. So then the U.S. is founded 1776. It becomes a nation. But at that point, it's really hard to argue that it's a nation of immigrants, right? Like, would you say that a nation that's a nation of immigrants, settlers forming colonies on indigenous lands with slaves? Starting in the, the late 1700s, actually, there was what was called the Naturalization Act, which allowed 
quote, free white people of good character who have been living in the U.S. for two years or longer to apply for citizenship. So that's how they dealt with naturalization and citizenship. The U.S. had a program of, quote unquote, civilizing indigenous North Americans, trying to get them to settle farms, join the economy and stuff. And the impetus behind that was that they thought indigenous groups would be more willing to give up the territories that they live on in exchange for having their own batches of private property. And they attempted to integrate uh, indigenous North Americans into the settler economy by giving them property. But they changed course in 1830 with the Indian Expulsion Act, which pushed indigenous people westward out of their historic lands. So at this point, again, it takes about 70 years from 1776 to the end of the expansion. And during that whole time, it's really hard to argue that that is a nation of immigrants. If they didn't have any immigration policy, how could they be immigrants? Right. Yeah, there's absolutely no immigration policy at all. Immigration policy actually starts in the United States 100 years later with the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Although there's two what could be called immigration booms, although it starts before immigration law. The first from the the 1830s to 50s, and there's a second wave of migration starting in the 1880s around the time of the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act being passed. In the 1860s, millions of former slaves are integrated to some degree within the American population, although they're denied many of the political, economic, and social rights as the the settler natural citizens, quote-unquote. By 1871, the U.S. made it illegal to write treaties with indigenous groups with the explicit goal of assimilation. The Dawes Act of 1887 dissolved the tribal ownership of land, dissolved tribes as legal entities, and forced indigenous people to become part of the culture of white settlers and take up the property norms of European settlers that resulted in more war and conflict that killed many assimilated others. So like when you look at this whole history, boy, and this is a whole, this is a multi-hundred year history with lots of details that I couldn't get into here today. But when you look at the whole history of that, it's very hard to argue that the defining feature of the United States is immigration, especially in like this sense that you know, the doors are open and we're so powerful because we have so much immigration and so on. It just doesn't really add up with the history. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, uh, and Papa, was this a patriarchal settler colonial society or were women also in power during this time? That is a really good question. Um, Yeah, so through the whole history of the U.S., it was almost entirely male political leadership. So although settler women were probably often complicit in racism and slavery and so on, sometimes like I'm not ruling that out either. But politically speaking, this was a society that also disempowered women. Well, at least that's gotten better. I mean, you know, just look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the the famous liberal Supreme Court justice, changing things. I'm sure she's not complicit in settler colonialism, right? Yeah, about that, boy. She wrote a unanimous Supreme Court decision that cited the doctrine of discovery to argue that even when an indigenous group buys back their land, they don't have a right to assert sovereignty, citing the doctrine of discovery. So she wrote that. Uh, So any sort of major political liberal figure, you know, your Joe Bidens, your Barack Obamas, your Hillary Clintons, they're going to be complicit with settler colonialism if you dig it a little bit. So, Papa, but is it good if we celebrate being a nation of immigrants even if it isn't exactly true just kind of like to make it true you know like a aspirational kind of thing well i understand what you're saying i mean anti-immigration politics is really toxic 
But if immigrants definitionally excludes refugees, then I think it isn't fully something to be proud of. But in having a narrative like that that obscures the institutional history of the U.S., you could sort of like ha- neither have your cake nor eat it too, where you're you're arguing something that's not true and it doesn't even prevent what you're seeking to prevent. So maybe it's better to acknowledge reality so we can better focus on challenging and changing the trajectory of the United States. Writing a new constitution or maybe creating a, a different uh, nation or constellation of nations in its place. Who knows? Future's unwritten. Wow. So, Papa, if we're a, a nation of male settlers, land speculators, and racially biased fiscal military state and police, and, and if we're defining the nation by its historical and political trajectory, does, is that a personal attack on me since I'm born into this society out of my control and participate in it? <laughs> uh, oh, no, no. Boy, it's funny. People often ask that it's not oh okay i mean we can all use this sort of knowledge like sometimes there might be something from history that's uncomfortable or challenging if you imagine yourself as part of that trajectory if you see yourself in those who did wrong in the past and don't see yourself in the people who are being oppressed and victimized which is what i would argue is that we should see ourselves in all of human history that we should identify with the human in all of this story, which means celebrating the beautiful things that human beings are capable of, while also rejecting, sharply criticizing, and working against the things that human beings are capable of, which you feel doesn't speak for you. So like, if it is true, isn't it better to know? Isn't it fascinating to the part of you that sort of stirs against injustice to learn the details of why things are the way they are? Isn't it motivating to have this context when we reimagine a better world? I think we can feel enriched by the power to stand in ethical solidarity with those affected by this system. I think you're right. Thank you, Papa. No problem, boy. Well, thank you for asking such good questions. And now, now we can think about, now that we know this and grasp this, what should be done? What could help repair what has been done? And that's the sort of questions that we're going to spend a great part of our life contemplating as moral political agents. So I'm glad we got you started young. Good night, Papa. Night, boy. And if you have any other questions, we can talk tomorrow. I, you know, I know boys are often curious. Are you serious? Next time on Seriously Wrong. So um, I've got a statue of Christopher Columbus here in the studio, uh, privately owned. Do you want to like symbolically pull it down? And I don't know, just an yeah, idea. Um, it won't fall over on anything, right? I guess if we pull it that way, it won't. Yeah, pull it towards yeah, the right. back corner. Yeah. And I mean, it's not really like it's not the same as a public. Like this is this is just 
a Christopher Columbus statue that I uh, I picked up. Well, it's up so in it's the not attic really, or something. It's not really this. You found it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I got it used for this purpose, just to pull it over. So it's not really. It's not the same, but like symbol. I feel like it's a nod to it. To yeah, do I it think anyways. it's good. It's it's better than if some pro Christopher Columbus person had bought it and displayed it publicly. I think this is this is the right symbolic. Yeah, on their front yeah, lawn. Move for this month. So yeah, let's uh, let's pull it down. Okay, uh, heave. Uh, ho! Oh, hey. <laughs> Look at that. Neat. Uh, now it's uh, fallen over. Even the hand broke off. Well, isn't that thrilling? That's I, I love that. You know, he wasn't even really, like, Italian. Right, yeah. No, it came from a city that would later be part of Spain, I guess. He never set foot in America. He just landed in the, the Caribbean. He was picked by American revolutionaries as the discoverer because they wanted to de-emphasize England having a claim to North America. I think he died in prison a disgrace. 